0: Hello everyone and welcome back to The Lead Podcast. I'm Sanam Zahidi and today's episode is the resident in-service review of the mandible. This is a supplementary episode and not a comprehensive review. This is a breakdown of key points from previous examinations that may help you if you're studying for boards or in-service. I have Dr. Brian basiri Terani with me today. Hey, Brian.
1: Hey, Sanam. Thanks God I'm here. Let's fire it up.
0: <laughs> Let's just dive into discussing the topic then. And let's start the discussion off with anatomy and explaining some of the confusing nomenclature of this region. When discussing the mandible, dentition is an important aspect. You'll hear us talk about edentulous patients throughout this episode. Edentulous just means patients without teeth. Just a quick overview of the teeth. Starting from the anterior midline and moving laterally, every type of tooth I mention is going to be replicated on either side. So we start with the central incisor, moving to the lateral incisor, to the canine, to the first and second premolar, and then to the first and second and third molars. Brian, can you walk us through the numbering system of the teeth?
1: Sure. There's a few different numbering systems for the teeth, but the universal numbering system that's widely accepted goes from 1 to 32 for adults, starting with number 1 at the rightmost lateral maxillary tooth and ending with 16 at the leftmost lateral maxillary tooth. Under it, starting with 17 at the leftmost lateral mandible tooth and ending with 32 at the rightmost lateral mandibular tooth.
0: Okay, and an important area for the exam is the number of roots each tooth has. So the maxillary molars have three roots and the mandibular molars have two. I think gravity is pulling more on the maxilla, so they need that extra root to latch on to the maxilla and stay there. The rest of the teeth usually only have one root. This is important to know because sometimes we have to extract teeth that are in line with the fracture and they're preventing us from reducing the mandible. So if all the roots of the tooth aren't extracted, then there's a potential for abscess and infection development. Each tooth root sits in a bony socket on the mandible and that's called the alveolus.
1: Now we all know the mandible has different segments, but the reason this is important is because we treat different mandibular fractures differently and it's dictated by its location along the mandible. We'll go over the different segments, but if you're a visual learner, I highly encourage you to watch us on YouTube for um, better illustrations and uh, citations. I'll kind of help you conceptualize this.
0: So, to simplify the segments, if we're looking at the face anteriorly, the mandible is made up of a horizontal bone, which meets up with two lateral vertical bones. And each one of those vertical bones are called the ramus. And the horizontal meets with the vertical at the mandibular angle. Now, to break this down further, The horizontal section of the mandible has three segments the symphysis, parasymphysis, and body. Right under the incisors in the midline of the mandible is the symphysis region. Moving lateral to the symphysis on each side and starting from the lateral incisors to the mental foramen is the parasymphysis region. And from the mental foramen to the distal aspect of the second molar is the body.
1: The angle of the mandible attaches the body to the ramus around the third molar. The ramus or vertical portion of the mandible, separates into two processes at the most cranial portion. Anteriorly, this is known as the coronoid process. Posteriorly is the condyle. This contributes to the TMJ or the temporomandibular joint. The mandibular notch is the curved depression between these two processes. One final distinction is that the area on the ramus under the condyle at the mandible notch is referred to as a subcondylar region.
0: Now, Brian, let's go over some quick locations of important structures. I'll name a structure and you tell me around which tooth should we expect to find them. Sound good? Sure. Okay, so mental nerve.
1: That's usually between the mandibular second premolar and first molar.
0: Infraorbital nerve?
1: Around the maxillary canine.
0: And Stenson's duct, or basically the end of the parotid duct.
1: Uh, That would be maxillary second molar.
0: Okay, now let's discuss another heavily tested topic. Pay attention because this is a pretty important part. The muscles of mastication. They can be broken down into the anterior muscle group and the posterior muscle group. The posterior group is really important, so we're going to focus on those really. It includes the temporalis, lateral and medial pterygoid muscles, and the masseter. A little embryology. All the muscles of mastication are developed from the first pharyngeal arch, All of them are innervated by the mandibular branch of the trigeminal nerve, a.k.a. cranial nerve 5. And one side note, one other muscle as part of this posterior group is the buccinator. It's not a true muscle of mastication. And why is that? Because it doesn't move the mandible. Its function is to compress the cheek against the teeth and help push the food back towards the molars. So because it's not like the rest of the other muscles, it's also innervated by a different nerve, the buccal branch of the facial nerve, aka cranial nerve 7.
1: Yeah, don't you remember having the patients puff their cheeks for your uh, cranial 7 exam? (laughs) Now let's look at the posterior muscles of mastication individually, and we'll work our way through these muscles based on their attachment from the coronoid process and condyle moving further down the mandible. Starting with the temporalis muscle, It attaches from the temporalis fascia to the coronoid process, and it elevates and retracts the mandible.
0: Moving on to the lateral pterygoid, it attaches from the lateral portion of the lateral pterygoid plate to the mandibular condyle, or basically the TMJ. Its function is to depress, protrude, and move the mandible side to side. This muscle is really important, so we have to mention a few things about it. First of all, this is the most heavily tested area about the muscles. Both the lateral and medial pterygoid muscles attach to the lateral pterygoid plate. The lateral pterygoid attaches to the lateral portion of the lateral pterygoid plate, and the medial pterygoid attaches to the medial portion of the lateral pterygoid plate, too. Second, because of the lateral pterygoid's attachment at the condyle, you see some characteristic occlusions based on the fracture pattern. So the tendency of the lateral pterygoid muscle is to pull the condyle medially. So when you have a subcondylar fracture, the condyle moves out of the glenoid fossa. It moves anteromedially, and you lose that vertical height of the mandible on the side of the fracture. What does this mean for occlusion? Well, if you lose that height, the side that's shorter is gonna have quicker contact between the maxillary and mandibular teeth versus the contralateral side. Let's look at this when you have a unilateral subcondylar fracture. Well, the condyle gets pushed out of the fossa, because of the lateral pterygoid that's moving immediately, you lose your height. And so you end up getting an ipsilateral crossbite because those teeth are touching sooner. And then on the other side, the contralateral side, you haven't lost any vertical mandibular height. So you get an open bite. And like I said, it's only because one side is closing faster than the other. But in contrast from a unilateral subcondylar fracture, if you have a bilateral subcondylar fracture, both sides are now losing that height, you're going to have an anterior open bite. And the reason for that is because your molars in the back are touching before the anterior teeth have a chance to do that. Since we're talking about these fracture patterns and inclusion, let's bring up one last fracture. And that's an isolated angle fracture. Well, with an isolated angle fracture, you're not going to lose mandibular height. So the only thing you're going to see is a crossbite on the side of the fracture. Yeah,
1: those are very important points. And I think you talked about that very nicely. Another very important point to keep in mind, this is actually relevant clinically, is that you won't see these fracture displacements in intubated patients because they're sedated and sometimes they're paralyzed. And you won't be able to assess their movement of their jaw or their occlusion whether it's open anterior bite or a cross bite, oftentimes you have to fully evaluate them once they're extubated if that's possible. This also has come up on the surface. Now back to the muscles. Medial pterygoid muscle, like we just said, attaches from the medial portion of the lateral pterygoid plate to the medial surface of the angle and ramus of the mandible. The function is to pull the mandible closed, medial, and forward. Together, the lateral and medial pterygoid are involved in the process of chewing and grinding. Painful teeth grinding, also known as bruxism, can be treated with Botox, which can improve masseter hypertrophy. You do have hypertrophy, we can always Botox that, right, Santa?
0: Yes. (laughs) And then the last muscle in this posterior group is the masseter. It attaches from the zygomatic arch to the lateral mandibular angle and ramus, and its function is to close the jaw and elevate the mandible. So the way I remember this is think of M&M, they go together, the medial pterygoid muscle and the masseter. They join at their insertion on the ramus to form a common tendinous sling, aka the pterygomasseteric sling, and together they're the powerhouse behind us closing our mandibles. And also they contribute to displacement for mandibular angle and body fractures.
1: And for completeness sake, I'm just going to mention the anterior group of muscles, which include the geniohyoid. The genioglossus and the myelohyoid.
0: Now, when we talk about mandibular fractures, they can be classified according to their location on the mandible, but also if they're favorable or unfavorable based on the muscular forces at the fracture site. Meaning, the anterior and posterior muscle groups can either pull fracture fragments together, which would obviously be a favorable fracture, versus the muscles pull the fracture fragments apart, which isn't what we want, and that's an unfavorable fracture. So, Brian, Since you love explaining confusing topics, why don't you walk us through this area? It
1: would be my pleasure. Okay, so fractures can be favorable or unfavorable in the horizontal or the vertical direction. So for horizontal fractures, you're looking at the mandible from a lateral view. Horizontally favorable fractures are fractures that travel from the alveolar border of the mandible downward anteriorly towards the inferior border of the mandible. Because both the posterior and anterior muscle groups are both going to pull up on the fracture fragments and thus towards each other, this is considered a favorable fracture. But for horizontally unfavorable fractures, the fracture travels from the alveolar border of the mandible downward, posteriorly towards the inferior border of the mandible. So when the muscles on either side of the fracture work, they actually pull them apart, making it unfavorable. Now let's move on to vertical favorable fractures. Now you're looking at the mandible from the occlusal surface down onto the mandible. Vertically favorable fractures are fracture lines that start at the buccal surface of the mandible and extends obliquely backwards towards the lingual margin of the mandible. Now the elevator and depressor muscles act against each other and keep the fractures from pulling apart, making it favorable. In vertically unfavorable fractures, the fracture line starts at the lingual border of the mandible and extends obliquely backwards towards the buccal surface. This makes the elevators and depressors of the mandible work in the same directions so the fracture fragments are actually getting pulled apart making it unfavorable?
0: Honestly, you did a pretty good job of explaining this and simplifying it. But I will admit for me, at least it's a pretty confusing topic. So I encourage everyone that's listening that if you can just take a look at our YouTube episode, we're going to have illustrations and imagings and it'll help significantly in terms of clarifying what Brian actually talked about in terms of favorable and unfavorable fractures, hearing it and seeing it, it's actually going to put it all together. And lastly, before we discuss fracture treatment, let's look at generalized stability patterns. So there's the concept of rigid stability versus traditional or functional stability. Rigid fixation or stability basically prevents all micromotion at the fracture site. So you have primary healing and no callus formation. This type of rigid stability sounds like an ideal treatment, right? You don't want anything to move at that fracture. But no fixation system is going to give you that absolute stability in all planes in a dynamic area like the mandible. So the second type of fixation, which is called traditional or functional fixation, with that there's some micro motion at the fracture site, but it doesn't impair healing. So you'll have secondary healing with callus formation.
1: And then there's two other types of fixation in terms of load-bearing and load-sharing. Load-bearing fixation, as the name implies, means that the plate has enough strength to bear all the force of the mandible during all movements. Any fracture can be treated with load-bearing plate. Typically, a accommodated fracture or atrophic mandible needs to have a load-bearing plate in order to accept all of the forces. A perfect example of this is a fixation using like a thick 2.4 millimeter recon plate. Load sharing fixation, on the other hand, is when the plate and the bone share the load. So a good example of that is a mini plate, compression plate, or a lag screw. The character of the fracture and the quality of the mandible usually determines if they get load bearing versus load sharing. A simple fracture can get either, but an atrophic mandible needs to get the load bearing plate because it really needs a plate to really accept all that force to mitigate any force on the fracture line.
0: That's right. Now putting all of this together, as we mentioned before, dentition is important when deciding how to treat mandibular fractures, and especially knowing if there's teeth present on either side of the fracture versus only one side versus none at all. We're going to walk you down Dr. Ellis's algorithm for non-condylar mandibular fractures, which should also help answer questions for the in-service. So first step is to see if a patient is edentulous or dentulous. If they have no teeth and you're dealing with an atrophic mandible, closed reduction or mandibular fixation alone isn't a possibility for them. So for these patients, you're only thinking of open reduction internal fixation. And for sake of simplicity, for the rest of this podcast, we're going to refer to that as ORIF. So then the next question becomes, after you decided that, okay, they're edentulous, they have an atrophic mandible, and we're just going to do an o r i f Then the next question is, are they going to get load bearing or load sharing plate? The only patient that can get a load sharing plate in this situation with this mandible is that very, very rare pudentialist patient that doesn't have an atrophic mandible, and they have a simple favorable fracture and the way you decide if someone has an atrophic mandible is you can look at an x-ray or a CT scan, and you see if they have a loss in their mandibular height, and that basically gives you an inclination. And like we mentioned before, any indentulous patient with an atrophic mandible, so that includes comminuted fractures, infected fractures, all of them are going to get load-bearing fixation or that thick recon bar.
1: Right. Now let's talk about dentulous patients. If there's teeth present on both sides of the fracture, we have two choices, either closed reduction or ORIF. If there's teeth only present on one side of the fracture or none at all, meaning the mandibular angle or ramus, open reduction internal fixation is the only option because you won't have stabilizing forces on both sides of the fracture. Now how do you decide load bearing versus load sharing if you go down the RIF track? Load sharing plates would only apply to simple linear fractures with favorable fracture patterns. Everything else including combinated and effective fractures need load bearing. Can't emphasize that enough. One final note about load sharing and mini plate fixation also known as a Chompy system which commonly comes up on the test is to perform internal fixation for non comminuted angle fractures. The plate is placed along the external oblique ridge and if you're following along on YouTube you can see a nice picture of that.
0: Now moving on to condylar fractures. Whether to treat condylar fractures as closed or open has gone through some debate throughout the years. But the safe answer for the in-service seems to be, regardless if it's an adult or a child, you want to do a short period of MMF for about two weeks. And it's important to note when we do MMF for other fracture sites, and this would include like a subcondylar fracture, It's usually about four to six weeks. The reason we only do two weeks for MMF for condylar fractures is because we're trying to avoid ankylosis of the TMJ. Since we're talking about condylar fractures, I think it's a good time to bring up the blood supply to the condyle because we get tested on that on the in-service a lot. So Brian, what are the three sources of blood supply for the condyle?
1: Sure. The first and most important one is the branch of the inferior alveolar artery. The second is from the TMJ capsule itself. And the third is branches from the lateral pterygoid muscle. Surgical access to perform or IF of condyle fractures require exposure and dissection of some of the soft tissue off of the condyle, which critics argue would further diminish the blood supply to the segment of bone that has already been severely compromised. I think if it's a very small fragment or it's comminuted, it's a good point. The other point I'll make is that the exposure for these fractures are kind of painful and working in a small space. So yeah, it's never really fun. Mm
0: -hmm. That's true. Our next exam favorite is the topic of osteoradionecrosis of the mandible. It's common after radiation to the jaw or bisphosphonate medication use. And the treatment can be broken down into basically three stages. In stage one, you have this exposed necrotic bone, but the patient's asymptomatic. They don't have any pain. There's no sign of infection like pus or erythema. So the treatment is to just observe those patients. In stage two, There's exposed and necrotic bone, but the patient has symptoms. So they have pain, they have acute signs of infection. And for these patients, you want to treat them with an antiseptic mouthwash, oral antibiotic, and superficial debridement. In stage three, not only do they have this exposed necrotic bone and signs of acute infection, but they also have, think of it as an extra complication, either a pathologic fracture or an extra oral fistula, something in addition to the infection going on. And the treatment for that would then be surgical debridement. You have to resect that part of the mandible and you want to do immediate reconstruction with usually a free fibula flap.
1: And lastly, we need to mention the anatomy around a submandibular incision because sometimes that comes up for the in-service and it's useful for putting in recon bars and bad traumas. The marginal mandibular nerve comes off the facial nerve trunk during its intraparotid course and travels along the mandibular border towards the symphysis. The nerve is located superficial to or within the superficial layer of the deep cervical fascia. So since the submandibular incision is two centimeters below the mandibular border, it's important to avoid injury to this nerve and you want to dissect deep to the deep cervical fascia and just above the mandibular gland. Another important anatomy point is that when the marginal mandibular nerve is within one centimeter below the mandibular border, it's posterior to the facial vessels. And when the nerve is above the mandibular border, it's anterior to these vessels.
0: This concludes our episode. Thanks for listening to our quick and non-comprehensive review of The Mandible. If you like our podcast, please spread the word, tell a friend, like us on Facebook, watch us on YouTube, and follow us on Instagram at The Loop Podcast to
1: get in the loop.